What's good? Welcome back to Black and Published, a podcast for writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. I'm your host, Nikisha Elise Williams, an award-winning author, two-time Emmy Award-winning producer, publisher, all that good stuff. Today, we're talking with M. Shelley Connor, author of Every Man, a new novel out right now, today, today right now, from Blackstone Publishing. So, M. Shelley Connor is a Chicago native. Southside, what's up? She spends her summers bouncing between her grandmother in Memphis and relatives in Los Angeles, reveling in the sprawl of the Great Migration. She received her PhD from the University of Illinois at Chicago. A multi-genre writer, she is the creator of the Queer Life web series and has published essays on dapper queer aesthetics, black womanhood, self-sustainable living, and their intersections in various publications, including The AV Club, The Griot, Playboy Magazine, and Crisis Magazine. An excerpt of Every Man appears in Obsidian, Literature and Arts in the African Diaspora. Connor is Assistant Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Central Arkansas and lives in Arkansas with her wife and their dog, Whiskey. In this conversation, we discuss why Black writers need to be let in in the industry in droves, the importance of names, place, and identity, the difficult choices the need for freedom requires you to make, and going after what the ancestors had been deprived of, especially life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Black and published family, let's welcome M. Shelley to the show. All right, so M. Shelley, thank you for joining me today on Black and Published. I really appreciate it. Oh, great to be here. <laughs> no problem. My first question is always, when did you know that you were a writer? Oh, um, so I grew up in a library. My mom was the um, head librarian at our local library. And so that was like my daycare. Um, books have always been a part of my life. And I've always kind of um, copied and, and emulated things and, and written things down to gain understandings of them better. So um, I've always been a writer. <laughs> well, I know you're from Chicago. I'm from Chicago. So this might be a real Chicago episode. But I have to ask, what was your local library? Avalon Branch Library. Do you know where that is? Uh, like over like 95th Street somewhere? Close. It's uh, 88th and Stony Island. Okay. Or, I've been I've been there. That's where it was. It's uh, been relocated to like 82nd and Stony, so just up the street. So, how did this love of books and growing up in the library influence you into writing your own stories and putting pen to paper? Yeah, I just again, like for me, because it was all I was around, it, it was quite organic and natural for me to start writing. Um, and I, I remember starting to write kind of my first uh, novel when I was, I think I was like in the sixth grade. And it essentially was just recording all the funny stuff that was happening around me 
<laughs> and I had one of those big uh, spiral notebooks, you know, the kind that has all the different um, dividers in it. And so I would just kind of write down funny bits of dialogue that people would say. Um, I didn't complete it. I don't know what happened to that notebook. I wish I could find it. But yeah, I just kept kind of evolving and, and developing. I spent some time doing spoken word, <laughs> um, like in uh, in college, and then immediately after when I moved back to Chicago um, from Tuskegee. And so, yeah, I um, I didn't really think about a novel or I was working my way up to um, a bigger form. And so really kind of seriously kind of put pen to paper to start on this uh, novel back in 2005, which was a completely different version. Um, yeah. So between just writing for kicks in school and 2005, did you ever like pursue writing as the career or did you just stay in academia? Like, how did that work, Professor? Um, yeah. So, and, you know, similar to my writing journey, my, my academic journey also kind of started at these earlier levels and moved up. So um, I started teaching elementary school and I taught elementary school in, in Chicago public schools for a decade um, before um, pursuing my PhD and then um, transitioning to higher ed. So, um, yeah, I wasn't, I, I always thought writing just was like a hobby, right? And so um, when I was teaching elementary school, um, I was like, yeah, I need a job so I can pursue my hobby. Um, but then the more serious I got about writing this book, um, and when I decided to um, pursue the PhD, I was like, I have to be willing to invest in this book first um, and, and in myself as a writer before I can even expect that someone else will. And so that was kind of my commitment and level of investment to this particular book. Um, I had been writing it in 2005 and um, I read Edward P. Jones's The Known World <laughs> And I put my little book project down and I was like, <laughs> we can do so much better than what we're doing, but I need to develop myself more as a writer. And um, at that time, you know, I'd already had like a master's in education. And I'm like, if I'm going to school, I'm going up a degree. You know, <laughs> I, I had no concept of, of, of the rigors of, of uh, PhD study. Um, but I, I, I'm a pretty good student and I love school. Um, so I, I did well um, and discovered a, a, a love of academia and wanting to not only write, but teach um, writing and higher ed. And so, yeah, that's when I really, really got serious. Um, I, I read The Known World and I was like, I think this book can be so much more than what, than, than what I'm doing with it right now. So then I've read The Known World, so I, I completely understand how that overwhelmed feeling can come. Did reading The Known World and then knowing you wanted to write your own novel intimidate you in a bit, in a way? Um, you know what? 
Not really, because and and I I like to tell people, you know, if you think about stuff like now, had I known then what I know now, right? Had I known it would take, you know, I don't know, 15 years for this book to to see the light, would I have picked it up then? Uh, And I'm not sure. But there's so much that I just didn't know. Like I mentioned, I didn't really know kind of um, the rigors of of academia and even just um, academic life at that level, right? Um, because I didn't know these things, I went in, you know, open-eyed, doe-eyed, and innocent <laughs> and experienced them. And I think that in a way sort of protected me. Um, that So I, I didn't know enough at the time to be intimidated. And by the time that, you know, I, I would have or was intimidated, I was already in the thick of it. Right. Um, But also like my relationship to to writers that, you know, I just grew up with. So, you know, the African-American literary canon. um, So Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, um, Ralph Ellison, uh, Zora Neale Hurston. Those are things that were very, very comforting to me. And I look to those works for storytelling, for language, for you know, um, plot. Um, and I always, um, learn best by example. And so a lot of things with writing, um, I knew how to do, uh, simply because I had experienced it through reading and kind of recognized, um, craft. Over the course of your PhD program and doing your creative dissertation, which eventually becomes Every Man the Novel, um, how has the book changed and taken shape from 2005 and your first inclinations to going through this rigorous PhD program of you at U of I to now? Well, there was such a huge change in it from 2005 before I entered the program to 2007 when I did enter it. I, I typically don't even count the 2005 version. I'll, I'll, I generally say I started this book in 2007 when I started the PhD program because it was such a completely different work. The only thing that remains the same between 2005 and 2007 is the main character's name and maybe like, well, her name and her name's story, how, how she gets her name. Um, so the difference between like, like 2007, it was, you know, writing um, a whole new work and really started to take shape um, once, you know, I finished my, um, my exams and could focus completely on the dissertation. Um, It's even gone through some pretty substantial changes since uh, graduating the PhD program in 2014 to when um, I got my agent in 2018, right? Um, I had been sending it out, querying um, independent publishers, querying agents, learning about that process as I went through it. So huge learning curve there. Um, and, you know, not having much success or, or I should say, you know, developing success because I would take that feedback, go back to the manuscript and um, just kind of revisit it and, and see, you know, what changes needed to, to be made. Um, and so it's interesting because when you start querying um, agents and and publishers and when you start getting 
to the point where they're giving you um, personal feedback, which is good. <laughs> uh, that's the next best thing to a, to a yes. <laughs> it, it's a no, but, you know, if, if you were to do this or whatever. And so I started um, taking that into account with, with the book because it, it also is a very good indicator of how readers are going to interact with the book, you know. And so it's not about, hey, changing the book um, so it sells, but it's taking this as feedback to to thinking about how this story, which isn't going to change, uh, how the storytelling needs to perhaps be amended so that, you know, it's it's more of an enjoyable um, engagement with the reader. And so things like that. So with agents, a lot of times they only want to see just the first little bit. And so something like that showed me, hey, at at the time, <laughs> it was a very slow wind up in in every man. Um, you had to really kind of invest to about in in three chapters in before, as as people would say, oh, it really gets good. Like you know, when you watch a TV episode, and uh, the the rule is you got to give it three at least give it three episodes before you say yay or nay. Um, and so I was thinking of of the novel like that, and I'm like, no, it's got to be more engaging in 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 chapter one. And so, yeah, just being able to kind of shift things around. What I found when I was reading the novel is that you give us just enough in each of those opening chapters across the different time periods and then all of the history that's weaved within it that I had to go and stop and look folks up and go back like, wait, now what? <laughs> And, and and put it all together that it really was a puzzle, but I don't know. I like puzzles. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. Like, as I told you, I went and got a sheet of paper and then started to diagram the story and the characters and how everybody went together to make sure I had all the pieces together as I was reading it. Um, was that intentional? And did that take shape early on in the writing, like around four, 2014, or did that come later once you began to get the feedback from agents and the independent publishers and then act, get, eventually work with an agent? Um, most of the the major um, elements of the book existed by the time I, I graduated in 2014. They just were uh, a bit rugged <laughs> and, and they needed to be smoothed out more. So it was intentional. I really liked the idea of being able to tell a story in multiple layers. Um, I wanted the the settings to to also be like characters, you know, and, and very essential, um, essential to the story. Um, I wanted to have these tangential narratives um, going on with the other characters to the point where once you got to the end, like you said, there are all these different puzzle pieces, it would feel complete because you've got all these different stories. And so you go just enough into them that maybe it just gives you a larger picture of um, these families and these lives and, and these communities. And so I, I really wanted to do that. And I, you know, admired, um, you know, how the known world did that and how it's been done um, in other works. Um, um, in um, Song of Solomon, Toni Morrison's, I, I kind of like envisioned this as being Song of Solomon with a female protagonist. <laughs> um, 
And so, you know, when you change something as essential as identity like that, it it does, you know, um, domino effect change the entire story. And so, yeah, I kind of started thinking about um, Eve and Nail as a um, milkman and and guitar um, in 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 Song of Solomon, and what the narratives would look like if you were dealing with, you know, young black women as opposed to two young black men. But even the relationships across the generations, mother and, and, and the mother and her lover, Eve and her best friend, all of that, and then the the people at the um at the the juke joint, I think that's Claudette and Johnny, like mm-hmm. all of they 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 all parallel what's happening in the present, and yes, all the puzzle pieces came together in the end, but in the end, I just felt sad. So I was like, Eve, like the reader knows everything and knows the entire story, but Eve doesn't. I was like, well, damn, wasn't that the purpose? <laughs> I find out that she still doesn't know what um, happened and I won't spoil it. Oh, at least I'm gonna try not to. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that actually was intentional. Um, I thought about, you know, how in, in stories you don't have to tie up every loose end, but I wanted the reader to be way more aware of things than Eve was. I wanted her to find some resolution um, and in a realistic way. So she is different than she was at the beginning. She does have an arc. Um, She doesn't know everything. And I, I, I really love that idea that, you know, it's the reader who I want to know it, to, to know everything. Um, you know, Eve does resolve or get some resolution um, to what she's searching for. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I liked to, to kind of play with that. Um, and again, different layers of storytelling. So there's Eve's narrative, which is one layer, but then there's this sort of master narrative of all of these stories that I'm laying out for the reader. And um, it's definitely why I chose the omniscient narrator. I I definitely saw that. And I think when people come to this text that, I don't know, they'll feel sad like I did. I just really felt sad. But then I also understood in a way that, especially dealing with Black people, (laughs) um, that you're trying to go and uncover all of these secrets about your family and your past. You're not going to get everything you're not going to get the full clean history. You're going to get what they're willing to give you at that time, especially if they're still living in, in a sound mind and body. Like sometimes those deathbed confessions might come in and they'll tell it all. But the people that she was dealing with, they were still actively alive and even dealing with their own demons. And I, I feel like I recognize that in why she is left aloof about the, the true identity that she's searching for. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to be realistic, you know. Um, sometimes the best you can hope for is, you know, a name, a date, or, or, or whatever. Um, and so I wanted to give her something, but I also wanted to give the reader a lot more insight. All right. So before I get into all of my questions about the book, because I've got page numbers for days, I want to let you read a snippet of it and give the listeners something to hear from the book. So I'll set you up and read the, uh, the description and then you can take it from there and then we'll really talk about what's happening here in every minute. 
Eve Mann arrives in ideal Georgia in 1972, looking for answers about the mother who died giving her life, a mother named Mercy, a mother who for all of Eve's 22 years has been a mystery and a quest. Eve's search for her mother and the father she never knew is a mission to discover her identity, her name, her people, her home. Eve's questions and longing launch a multi-generational story that sprawls back to the turn of the 20th century, settles into the soil of the South, the blood and souls of Black folk making love and life, and fleeing into a great migration into the savage embrace of the North. Eve is a young woman coming of age in Chicago against the backdrop of the twin fires and fury of the civil rights and Black power movements, a time when everything and everyone, it seems, longs to be made anew. At the core of this story are the various meanings of love, how we love, and most of all, who we love. Every man is peopled by rebellious Black women straining against the yoke of convention and designated identities, explorers announcing their determination to be and to be free. There is Nell, Eve's best friend and heart, who claims her right both to love women and to always love Eve as sister and friend. Brother Leroy, professor and mentor, gives Eve the tools for her genealogical search while turning away from his own bitter harvest of family secrets. Mama Anne, the aunt who has raised Eve and knows everything about Mercy, offers Eve a silence that she defines as protection and care. It is James and Geneva, strangers Eve meets in ideal, who plumb the depths of their own hurts and reconciliations to finally give Eve the gift of her past, a reimagined present, and her name. And Shelly is all yours. Thank you. Um, I guess the best thing to do is to just read the, the prelude <laughs> um, to give everyone a taste. Small Southern towns don't embrace change. Ideal Georgia noted only two major changes, when the railroad married it and when the railroad divorced it. Ideal preferred, preferred age over distinction and still boldly declared itself to be the only ideal city in Georgia as a painted slogan beaconing from the town's water tower proclaimed. There was a police station, a small windowless brick building with a front door on one side and a garage on the other. Next to it was a small storefront office. Three churches, a Baptist, a Methodist, a Church of God in Christ, flanked one gun store. Located in the curve of the Bible Belt, Ideal was protected by God and guns, often the latter before the former. Of the two schools, the one high on the hill overlooking the town served the minority white population. Down the hill and around the bend, hidden in the hindquarters of Ideal, a small brick structure held the responsibility of educating black youth. Still, Ideal was one of those towns where children seemed to be rare, and eventually small-town self-segregation would disappear. Time would bring the decaying of the Black school just as it crept into the bones of the train depot once the railroad ceased to stop there. By 1972, most of the town's residents could recite only the resolution of its name story, that the Atlanta-Birmingham and Atlantic Railroad had deemed their 1.2-square-mile patch of land as being an ideal place. Yet few recollected that it was first named Joe Town, and none had any knowledge of the Joe for whom it was named and subsequently unnamed. 
adding nuance to the meaning of ideal with the various pronunciations of the word as if as it was transfigured through the Southern dialect, dialect of the majority African-American township. Ideal became ideal, as in to distribute, manage, or handle. Idle, as in inactive or at leisure. Idea, as thought. And sometimes, ida, the bastardized contraction of I would have. And so in the autumn of 1972, Eve Mann did not arrive into ideal by rail, but rather bumbled across the Georgia clay in a Greyhound bus, which deposited her somewhere in the middle of a shared station for Macon County. If the two-pump filling station with unevenly lane wooden planked walkway could be classified as a bus station, it was little more than the city bus stops that Eve was accustomed to that lined the streets of Chicago, which would have also appeared as portals to nowhere without the thriving metropolis of the cityscape enfolding them. Ideal was a small town like all others, It once had big city dreams, but its growth had been equally nurtured and stunted by the railroad. A quick mart was attached to a single filling station. It advertised the sale of packaged goods, the broad term given to alcoholic beverages. Other than its 500 residents, those who stepped foot in Ideal were usually taking a restroom break at its sole filling station, grabbing a few snacks and reboarding the Greyhound bus. For that reason, when anything more than exhaust and dust remained after the bus's departure, news spread quickly. It usually started with the chess club. Disembarking from the bus, Eve shrugged out of her corduroy jacket. It may have been autumn temperatures in Chicago, but Macon County was still very much in the heat of summer. Her white canvas sneakers immediately became covered in red clay dust as she began to move toward the cargo compartment of the bus's exterior. Eve had been ready to welcome the fresh Georgia air and sunshine after being cramped on the bus for so long with the lingering odor of things once pleasantly classified as aromas at the start of the journey. Fried chicken, perfume, freshly washed clothing, and bodies had all become stale with time and distance by their arrival in Macon County over 12 hours later. Beyond looking up ideal in her aunt's Rand McNally Road atlas, Eve hadn't had much of a plan for her trip. But Ideal was incredibly small, smaller than her Chicago Southside neighborhood. So she had packed a week's worth of clothing in one of Anne's green leather suitcases and jotted down the addresses of the two places that could help her the most, the public library and a motel. There were one of each. Like all small Southern towns, Ideal had one grocery, one package store, a funeral home run by the same family for generations with its requisite one son who refused the family practice. There was a diner and a service station with a mechanic who wore denim overalls every day and had perpetually grease-stained fingernails. Outsiders called the town quaint as they drove through to more appealing cities. In case of emergency stops, they cursed it as hell, unable to imagine being happily stuck there. Eve imagined that it looked the same as it had over 20 years ago when her mother left. She made her way toward the Quick Mart, her suitcase pulled her heavily to one side as a map fluttered from its folds in her other hand. Although several passengers were behind her, Eve was the only one toting luggage. The rest were simply making a pit stop on their way to other destinations. The line at the register was long, so Eve decided to wait until the other passengers reboarded the bus. She dropped her suitcase next to the ice cooler against the building and sagged down beside it to consult her map. Deuce leaned over from his seat a few feet away. Fresh off the bus and lost already? Taint the best start, little missy. Eve glanced up at the kind-looking old man. 
Wrinkles waved across his brown face in accordance with the humor in his eyes and smile. He wore both suspenders and a belt beneath his ever-present sports coat. The shine on his shoes defied the Georgian dust. Nobody needs a map in idea, he pronounced the city, idea. It's smaller than an ant's ass, he laughed, and the wrinkles smoothed, allowing Eve a glimpse of the handsome youth beneath the old man's years. Eve joined in the laughter. I'm looking for some people. I don't even really know who they are or if they're still alive or living here. Deuce smiled. Hell, gal, you don't need no library. I'm 80 years old and been living here all my life. I'm John Johnston, but most folks call me. Let me guess, Eve interrupted. JJ. Deuce laughed. No, but you got the right idea. Deuce. On account of the double J's. The nickname, typical of Southern logic, required an extra step. They hadn't gone for the ease of J.J., but had continued on to think of two J's as a deuce. Nice to meet you, Mr. Johnston. I'm Eve. She extended her hand. Eve, man. Deuce's hand froze in the handshake, and his smile faltered. Her face had been familiar to him in the haziness of one who has seen too many faces over the many years. Now Eve's face and the name recognition coalesced in Deuce's mind. Man, you say? Eve, slightly unnerved by his piercing gaze, nodded. With two ends. And who you say you looking for? But even before she had dug out the picture, Deuce knew. Eve handed it to him. Any of these people or information about them. Deuce stared at the picture, his eyes never leaving the face of Cornelius Gaines as Eve pointed, reintroducing faces that he hadn't seen in years. This is my mother, Mercy. She died in childbirth having me. Eve plowed through her descriptions with a speed that did not take into account the weight of the information. Deuce had often wondered what had become of Mercy, yet he scarcely had time to register her death before Eve had moved on in her account. This is my Aunt Anne. She raised me. This is my grandmother, Gertrude. Never met her. And I think this man is my grandfather, but he's got a different last name, and my aunt never talked about him. Deuce silently handed the photograph back to Eve. I spec you stand at the end down yonder. Eve nodded. I can give you a lift in my truck, let you get settled in, and maybe you come around the house this evening for dinner. The missus loves company, always going on about what she's seen on the television or read in the magazines. I don't half pay that stuff no mind, really, but she'd love to have a city gal to chat with. Eve smiled, uncertain. That's awfully nice of you, Mr. Johnston, but... I can tell you about your kin. This prelude, it gives a sense, it gives the story direction, but it's also very ominous with, um, especially when she meets Deuce and he starts to stare at her like, oh, she looks familiar. And then when she spells her name and then that quiet, I can tell you about your kin. I was like, okay, here we go. And so it made me um, think that, you know, this is a story of how family is made and remade and then remade again in the telling of family histories to get to the story of identity and place. But I guess even in Eve learning about all of her story or as much of it that she does with the reader learning all of her story, it still seems as if the people who are in the story even don't even know the entire story as well. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's family. That's family history, right? We're all puzzle pieces. And 
you know, the idea is if you were able to get all of these people together, if they were willing to to come together and speak honestly, um, then they would be allowed this full picture. But because of our individual experiences and and levels of comfort and discomfort, you know, we we hold back. We don't do that, you know. And so I wanted the book to reflect that. I also noticed because every chapter starts with this distant history in a way that then the fictional characters and the narrative are then immersed in themselves. What role did history play in your life or why did you feel the need to start so far out and then bring it together? Um, I just was really fascinated by the historical research that I was doing for the novel. It started out, the idea was, you know, it's, it's a work of historical fiction. I need to know what's going on, what's the climate, what's the social and political climate um, at that time. And I started just, un- just uncovering um, really important events and things that would have surely affected the characters. Um, but I also didn't want to necessarily um, force the characters to have to deal with that as a part of their story, right? And so I was seeking a way where I wanted to include it in in the narrative, like this is what's going on, but also, um, and and this is kind of what's coloring the character's world at the time, um, but this is what they're kind of actively dealing with um, on a personal level, right? And so. Um, it's I, I I kind of give my um my my students the example of you know if you're writing a story um, that take that takes place on September 11, two thousand one, right? <laughs> People are automatically going to think about you know nine eleven, right? And so it has to be aware of that event, you know it, it can't ignore it, but maybe your character isn't specifically dealing with um, that tragedy, right? And so trying to think of how can I have this character, you know, dealing specifically with what's going on in their life, but also present what's kind of coloring the world around them at this time. And so um, once I decided to do that, I just went like ham on it. I was like, you know what, let's ramp it up. Let's do this for every chapter and now let's be a bit more strategic about it. And so um, there are things that may directly influence the character at their time, but there are also things that just um, are, are, are even further back in history. Um, so, yeah, like I, the lean in and the, the wink and a nod to Leroy, who becomes Brother Leroy who then, if you look it up, is Amiri Baraka. And I was like, oh, okay, here we go. Um, but what I think, what I had to really like go and Google was that chapter where Leroy or Brother Leroy is finding about out about his parents, his mother, his sisters in the class, the Melungeons. And I was like, wait, what? This is new. And so like, as I was reading that and then her adamant convincing that this black presenting man isn't black, but Melungeon. I was like, you know, it, it it brings in that that question and that that trajectory of race 
um, you know, the gradation of blackness and the, prox the proximity to whiteness is another function of white supremacy. Like she's white presenting, but her brother is black presenting. And she's trying to say, well, no, we're, we're neither. We're Melunges. I'm like, that doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I liked to be able to use the characters um, to also kind of engage in deeper discussions about things like race and gender and sexuality. And so, you know, again, being strategic about what they're going through and the Melungeons popped up again in historical research. I actually was just doing more research on the great migration and what uh, the newspapers were uh, writing about it as it was happening. This influx of black folks leaving the South in droves and really changing um, the demographics of cities like Chicago. Um, but what I found was I didn't, they, they weren't really writing about that in the papers at the time. They were writing about another migration that was happening at the same time um, called the Hillbilly Highway, which is what I titled that. And I was like, what? And so I'm thinking that you know, certain things I just kind of gave a nod to, but I was like, I really want to kind of work this in um, and talk about this other migration going on at the same time. And I wondered, you know, because it was mostly, um, you know, the, the derogatory term hillbillies, but um, Appalachian folk uh, leaving that region and also migrating to um, cities where you had industry. So Chicago for like meatpacking and Detroit for the automotive industry. And so I always, when I'm thinking about stuff, it's like, where do, where do, where do black people at, right? Um, and so the idea was, what would a black person migrating out of Appalachia who also has that culture be like? And what are the lines, you know, what are the, the racial lines? And when um, I just, you know, found the, the Melungeons in my research, um, it just really, really came together to kind of explore these very fixed and, and sometimes blurred lines of race within the same historical context. But it's, it's not only the blurred lines of race, it's also the blurred lines of gender identity and sexuality as well and exploring the different relationships between the characters, their mentors, um, and then even within their own family members. Um, especially like that that every Eve never finds out about Geneva and Mercy, and that Anne is keeping that secret, and Geneva's keeping that secret and smoking it away on the back porch. And it's just like, you know, or that Claudette and Janita were never able to be free. And then Big Steve was reminding me of Junebug. It's like everybody feels constricted into their, into their binary and are not allowed to come out of it. And that informs the narrative. And then that, that constant searching that Eve has for an understanding of her best friend, as well as an understanding of herself. Yeah, I mean, the, the basic premise of, of the whole work is, you know, what are the stories that people won't tell, right? We, we, we love to pass down stories and stuff like that, but what are the ones that people refuse to tell? What about the names that people cross out and erase from family Bibles? So I was interested in those stories. And 
I was like, what types of stories would those be? And it also used to amuse me when, um, especially, you know, being a Black queer woman, uh, one of the, the first kind of things that people will ask you, are you sure, right? Maybe you're going through a phase. And you hear that so often. I, I wanted to kind of unpack that. Like, is, is this a phase? Is this a phase that these older folks are familiar with? What would that familiarity look like? You know, and why are they familiar with it? Right, right. And that 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 it's always like they wait for you to do something before they introduce a whole no- level of, oh, here's what I know about it. Right. I'd never say anything unless it came up. So like if if I had never been queer, then I would never get that talk of, well, is this a phase? And the assumption that, oh, sometimes people do go through these phases, right? Um, And so I wonder what those stories would be like of older people in in an earlier generation having same-sex relationships that would later be kind of classified or or kind of rewritten to be described as a phase because it didn't last. And so I started thinking about why might these relationships have not lasted and then be be kind of reinterpreted by other people as it being a phase. And, and in doing that, especially with the time period that you're writing about, where it's the tail end of the Great Migration, it's the tail end of the Civil Rights Movement, it's the beginning and the end of the Black Power Movement in Chicago specifically, where, you, where they went from, you know, the loss of Fred Hampton and then full on into the drugs that has later plagued the city. And it, it just made me think that, you know, the, the assassination of those at the forefront of Black liberation directly coincides with the rise and in insidious infiltration of drugs into those same communities that are still in need of freedom. But then all of those freedom struggles whether it be for Black liberation or for LGBT rights and, and those different liberation struggles all come from that first movement of civil rights in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, I um, and again, like one of the other main kind of tenets of this book is um, if you take the story of one person, eventually it will tie into the story of of everyone and you would get everyone's story, right? And I think whether that's a person or a community or a city, the principle is still the same. You know, you can take one aspect and it would connect to all of these others. So if we talk about um, the, uh, you know, tale of two cities for a city of, of Chicago and how, you know, it's predominantly Black South Side is regarded as opposed to the rest of the city. And we just kind of hone in and focus on Chicago's South Side and whatever um, the uh, ills that plague those neighborhoods, whether it's violence in the community, um, violence from the police, (laughs) state-sanctioned violence from defunding and closing schools, um, food deserts and and, uh, all of these things that are going on at the same time, it's it's one big monster, and these are the different organs of that monster, right? And we can go back and trace what kind of started these things. And so, um, when you get the you know kind of influx of 
not just Black folks from the South, but also other, quote, non-desirables from the Appalachian region, and they're all um, being forced into the same area. And you have things that, like Lorraine Hansberry wrote about in A Raisin in the Sun, you know, kind of the redlining practices, um, which we also see um, Ta-Nehisi Coates writing about in A Case for Reparations, all of this showing the connections um, you know, how do you have characters who are living when all of that stuff is happening and what that looks like, right? So then does all of that that you just described, as well as all the tenets of the book, the different stories, the different characters, the different time periods, all leading back to each other. And did that all inform the character's name and even the, the, the title, Every Man and Then Every Man? Um, yeah. And so, uh, with that, um, I, I always, it's, it's also kind of an indictment on, um, who gets to represent universality. Right. Mm. Um, and, and it's typically, you know, kind of, um, cisgender white men, right. Who get to play these universal roles. And I, I wanted my every man to literally be, you know, a black woman. And so it does, you know, quite literally engage with where, where the term comes from, uh, the uh, 15th century morality play, every man, that's where we get the term from. And, you know, it's a morality story of, you know, a person going on this epic journey. And so, so is my book. Um, it is the story of a person going on an epic journey. And when we think about just analogies for life. You know, we always use it for going on a journey and stuff like that. And, and the prodigal son, or in this case, prodigal daughter, leaving home, getting some experience, and then eventually returning home being changed, right? And so all of those ideas and the concept of, you know, just the everything, I, I figure um, a Black woman sort of best represents that. Um, also, like um, I was pretty heavily influenced by, like I said, Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon. And I loved how her uh, that book had name stories. Right. It it was the story of um, Milkman making dead, <laughs> um, finding his name. And so, again, I, you know, quite literally doing the same thing with Eve, finding out the story of her name. And so that, again, is a narrative, this, this, this character's name story. All right. Before I ask a question directly related to that, I have to ask, where did the story of Junebug and the Salt come from? Because I loved it. I was like, oh, wow. She, I don't know where you got it from. I had no, I mean, I've heard of, you know, use salt to cast out a devil or whatever, but the way that it expanded in that chapter and was just taken to a new level, I was like, oh my gosh, where did that come from? Yeah, the um, the uses of salt is always going to be one of my favorite and one of the most important chapters in the book, because when I was writing it um, in the PhD program, when I got to writing that chapter, that's when I felt it. That's when I was like, that this is what this book is supposed to be and do. And that's the chapter I use to kind of go back and revise all the other chapters um, to have that same arrangement of here's this um, information that's kind of, you know, 
seems indirectly related. And then we focused in on, on the story. So that's where I actually decided to, um, that's how the book would be organized. Um, I, I mean, I, I remember writing it and taking notes. Um, and when I workshopped it, uh, people were really digging the salt and, and, and they were like, um, I feel like it needs more salt. Right. <laughs> and so I was like, Hmm. So I started doing more research on uses of salt. Right. Cause I was like, how many uses of salt can I, can I put in here and it still be very much relevant to what these characters are doing. And so that's how I was with the salt. I was like, yeah, needs more salt. And so I just put it on in there, all over yeah. the steps, all over the house, everywhere. <laughs> um, so then in doing that, because you say it was that chapter that kind of made you go back and reformulate the others. Uh, the other prominent thing that I from the book that stands out is the well. So did that iteration or that how it seemed unrelated, but then came to be interconnected in every part come after you wrote the salt chapter? Um, yeah. And so at that time, I started thinking about how can, again, everything that I put in here or the majority of them have their own stories and all this layered storytelling. So um, what would the story of the whale be? And I wanted it to have a narrative that flowed uh, through the book or certainly, you know, the latter half of the book in, in section two, um, what's the story of this whale? If this whale is a character and how does it interact with the other characters? Um, and telling those multi-layered stories, which you said earlier is just boiled down to name stories, similar to uh, song of Solomon what do you want readers who come to this book to take away from all of the different layers? Um, I really want them to just feel like they've engaged in a lot of different conversations. Um, I, I would like the book to sit with them um, and just kind of connect to a deeper level every time that they think about it. You know, um, I want it to be a book that they're able to kind of return to and, and get something more from it um, every time they read it. I mean, I want them to want to read it multiple times and, and share it with people. But I, I essentially, I just wanted to tell a good, you know, a good story that um, people can engage with on, on different levels. Um, and that they can I, hopefully even see themselves and their people in. Is this story or this novel a story that you were looking for that you didn't see when you were growing up always in the library and throughout your academic and scholarly journey? Absolutely. I mean, you kind of catch different glimpses of it, but we're always looking for ourselves um, in stories and in film and stuff. And, you know, all these industries have, you know, a history of doing a disservice to uh, Black people and queer folk and Black queer folk. And I wanted to put something out there that people can pick up and read and, and be seen and feel themselves seen. It reminded me in a way of Robert Jones Jr.'s The Prophets, 
Mm-hmm. And that he was saying, you know, the erasure of Black queer stories from certain time periods. And then now that the need to censor them. So see, he censored the story in the antebellum South. You censored it in 1970s Chicago and Georgia. And I guess as more writers emerge, I know Brian Broom's memoir is coming out, Punch Me Up to the Gods. There's going to be this more centering of all types of narratives. What do you think is... Well, not what do you think? Why do you think it has taken so long for these stories of Blackness and Black queerness and the intersection of the two and just the, the different time periods in which we have all existed to come out now? Because it's 2021. I mean, like like all things, we're, we're still struggling for equity, right? Um, we still are marginalized in all of these industries in, in publishing. And it's not that these stories aren't out there or being written, but the, you know, the gatekeepers and the gate is still, you know, so narrow. Um, and I'm hoping to open the door up more in the same way that like Kiese Lehman and Robert Jones Jr. both kind of opened the door um, for me. Um, and I, I love for, you know, our, our books to also, because once you do that, you see that our books are in conversation with each other, not just with, you know, the, the works of Ellison and, and Morrison um, and, and Baldwin, but also with each other, with contemporary writers right here and right now. And we're all super supportive um, of each other. And it's like, come on, let our books live on the shelves together um, and you would get a really robust conversation about these things. So, yeah, like everything else, racism, that's why, you know, them thinking that our stories are not universal. And that's kind of one of the, again, one of the tenets of the book of every man, that you can have a Black woman be the every man. And this book can be relatable to white people. In the way that I mean, hell, um, most of us, you know, can't do like magic, like like Harry Potter, but that's considered a universal book, right? Because you know, you get epic journey and stories and learning who you are and all of this, and so it's the themes that the works explore that make them universal. It it doesn't mean that you have to be going through the exact same experience, and so. Uh, publishing understands that whenever there's, you know, a white author and a white character, they just need to apply that same principle to our works as well. I definitely see the conversation happening in, in literary form between you and Robert Jones Jr. and even you and TSA uh, with his memoir, Heavy. And I even saw it with um, in, in how you structured the book and gave it so many different Time periods and references, I thought of, you know, The Color Purple, I thought of Ma Rainey, I thought of Bessie Smith, I even thought of Moms Mabley, um, and just how everything works together and to steal from The Lion King in this great circle of life. <laughs> but I guess it would be a circle of literature, a circle of, um, you know, Black art and the Black canon that it all comes together and that one one often talks to another, even if it was even if the authors or the artists or the writers don't know each other. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I love that analogy. Um, and so, yeah, it's like, let us, let us in. 
<laughs> in droves you know it's, it's not, yeah <laughs> so not just oh you're just the one at the moment um so yeah for sure and we're we're also influenced by white writers as well you know it's a, a lot of who we had to read um so a lot of times we're more experts in you know kind of mainstream western literature <laughs> than than they certainly are or willing to be um in in black lit and black lit is certainly an important part of of all literature right you you get a bigger um another a, a huge piece of the puzzle of this thing called life um yeah one final thing on on the book side before we transition to our next sec sec section um it feeling like current thing of trying to get free be it free from religion free from what you've been told all your life, free from secrets and, and just freedom in general. How does that word and all of its connotations inform this work? Yeah, I, and I think that's the essential kind of journey, our, our life's journey. Um, we are nurtured ideally, um, but we have to kind of become our own person Mm. And that is a journey. It's a process. Uh, and we have to reconcile a lot of stuff within ourselves and within our home, whether it you know, people, place, um, in order for us to become who we're supposed to become, you know, our authentic self. And so um, you have to make choices, uh, which which can be hard and and difficult and Freedom is making those choices, you know, some of the choices, you know, it might be between a rock and a hard place, but it's still a choice, you know, and so um, I think it was, it's probably um, Chris Rock, who had said something about um, when he was asked what was freedom to him, and he said it, it was choice, being able to choose which projects to do and also being able to have the choice to say no, to turn down a project because you don't need the work or the money and stuff like that. And that certainly stuck with me as well, that freedom is choice. Freedom is, is, is options, you know? And when, when we think about that, especially um, with uh, people who are marginalized in, in different ways, you know, what is freedom as, as a writer? being able to write what I want and know that there's an audience for it and that it can and will be published, you know, um, freedom to tell a story, how I want it told um, about people whose stories need to be told. And so that's freedom for M. Shelley as a writer. But what is freedom for M. Shelley as a person? Because, you know, I follow you on Facebook, so I see all the homesteading and I'm just like, I don't have it in me, but this looks amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's also, again, um, freedom. So thinking about, you know, in Chicago, um, we, you know, we, we had a house on the South Side and everything. And I was on the academic job market. And we started thinking about um, how we wanted our life to be. All this stuff was happening. You know, you had kind of gun violence going on. Um, then you started, I mean, it's been ramped up every year since, but things like all the recalls, the food recalls, you know, 
first it was meat and everyone can understand meat, you know, uh, but you know, when it started being lettuce and fruit, oh, romaine. <laughs> and, and so I was like, you know, um, let's add this to kind of the picture of what does it mean to live safer and healthier? Um, we wanted land, you know, we mm. wanted what our ancestors had been deprived of. Uh, we wanted to be property owners of land and have space where we could be safe. Um, we wanted freedom and safety in our food choices and not to have to um, consume food that hadn't been processed um, with care <laughs> uh, in, in mind. Um, and so we started thinking about, you know, a homestead. You know, so we've got 15 acres down here in Arkansas. Uh, we just moved here um, on the homestead um, in December, and we've been on the go with it. We've got solar power set up. So again, all the things that have been disruptive to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Mm -hmm. Those are things we're addressing. All of this is, again, building up to being able to live freely. I think uh, <laughs> Black women, you know, the, the, the muse of the world, Zora Neale Hurston wrote, and Malcolm X kind of echoes that the most disrespected person in the world is a Black woman. So we certainly are the ones who are most deserving and in need of safe spaces and safe choices and freedom. Um, and if, if you uplift kind of the most sort of downtrodden, then you, you uplift the rest of society. And I think we've seen that what black women can do, um, even with other people's feet on our necks, right? How one, two, three, even of us can make incredible changes looking at what like Stacey Abrams and, uh, some of the other, um, politicians and social justice workers were able to do in Georgia, right? And so imagine what we could do um, if given space and options and freedom. And so I also envision our homestead as being a safe space for Black women and Black queer women, especially um, once we get it up and going and being able to do retreats. <laughs> and, and there's that word is freedom in your life and there's freedom in your work. Is that going to maybe be a consistent theme throughout whatever you have to come next? Yeah, I mean, I think we're all trying to get free, right? And so with writing, it's it's one work at a time, you know, that our our writing is an act of, of liberation um, mm -hmm. or at least a journey to us seeking it in some part. And so everything that I write is addressing some aspect of that, whether I'm writing fiction whether I'm writing essays um, about homesteading, which I've started doing now. Like, a, like I said, a lot of the stuff that I do, how I live is processed through my writing. And so I've started doing a lot of writing about things like homesteading and Black women now in a, and Black people also in a reverse migration returning to the South. And so a lot of my essays have been about that. Um, you know, so this reverse migration in reality and every man, the book, 
is a reverse migration because the narrative starts in 1972 Chicago and then they go backwards to 1920s Georgia. And that is a parallel of the Great Migration. So, yeah. All right. So I'll put a pen in that and go through the speed round and have the last question. I'll let you go. Okay. All right. So what is your favorite book? Um, Long Division, Kiese Lehman. I have not read that one yet. I, I read the description and I'm like, this sounds like it's going to twist my mind in so many different ways. And I'm not sure if I'm ready to go there with him yet. Yeah. <laughs> so it's on my to be read list. <laughs> I, I'd say that one. And, and I have to get it to it's a uh, Pam by Matt Johnson as well. <laughs> Who is your favorite author? Oh, that one's hard. Um, Tony Morrison. So many, so many. What is your favorite song? Oof, that also changes, but um, one of the ones that's kind of stuck with me, especially in writing Every Man, is um, uh, This Bitter Earth, um, Dinah Washington, the, the slow version. What is your favorite time period in history to write about? Well, <laughs> the Great Migration, but um, I think maybe, and I haven't yet kind of uh, uh. <laughs> uh Harlem Renaissance which is in the midst of the great migration so right I see that parallel uh one thing you miss about Chicago if anything because some people don't miss it at all my friends and food <laughs> the just the restaurants sauce. yeah yeah the restaurants and and the options um, what stories and narratives do you wish were more explored in literature? Um, Black queer folk. Which area of the United States do you think is the most ideal? <sighs> um, there isn't one, especially if you are a Black queer woman. Um, so personally, what we're creating here on the homestead. And if you could curate your perfect library bookshelf, and I see you have your little library behind you, who would be on it? Okay. I mean, I guess I could <laughs> read alphabetically starting with Maya Angelou and uh, <laughs> with like Richard Wright um, and everyone in between who, uh, black authors. Um, so of course I always mention Ellison, Morrison, um, but I'll, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll name some ones that people may not be entirely familiar with. So uh, that have been influential to me. So um, Cherry Muhanji, the book, her, um, well, Jasmine Ward, people know Jasmine Ward, of course. Um, I'm actually going to, I can even read my <laughs> list of, of authors on here. Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison, Pearl Cleage, um, Tommy um, Adeyemi, I probably mispronounced that, Alice Walker, Octavia Butler, yes. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, Audrey Lord, yes. Lorraine Hansberry, Nikki Giovanni, um, Tony K. Umbera, Gwendolyn Brooks, Tiare Jones, Edwidge Dandicat. Um, so, yeah. And and so said, many more. <laughs> so, so, so many more. Uh, Kiese Lehman and uh, Robert Jones Jr. <laughs> cool. All right. So, final question. 
You came to writing through reading. When you are no longer here, what would you want someone to write and or read about your legacy that you left behind? Um, well, and I don't really see myself actually publishing this for a while, but a memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, I have started kind of note-taking on it and, you know, kind of brainstorming and writing some things. But because of the self-work that you have to do, like I say, choices and becoming, you know, working to become the, the person that you're supposed to be, um, and there's a lot of things that you have to reconcile. And I am doing that actively. Um, and I think quite well, but there's one thing to do it. There's another thing to write it and publish it for all to read. And so um, I'm not quite ready for some stories to be shared mm-hmm. just yet. That would definitely have to go into that memoir. And I think about like Kiese Lehman's heavy and how it feels very heavy for him. Um, and the things that people ask and that they feel, you know, that they can engage with and talk about that are so super personal to him. Right. And because so he wrote uh, about it. Yeah, exactly. And so it is inviting people to, but when you said when I'm no longer here, so yeah, absolutely. That memoir <laughs> <laughs> have at it. Talk about it when I'm gone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you, M. Shelley, for joining me today. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me. Big thank you to M. Shelley Connor for joining us on Black and Published today. Make sure you check out M. Shelley's debut novel, Every Man, out now. I cannot stress that enough. It's out right now, July 20th, 2021, from Blackstone Publishing. And if you're not following M. Shelley, follow her on the socials. She's at M. Shelley Connor on both Instagram and Twitter. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you hear, leave us a rating, a review. Please leave us a review. Or even just a comment and let us know who you'd like to hear on the show next. You can also follow Black and Published at Black and published on Instagram and Twitter at BLK and published. And to keep up with me, head to my website, newrights.com, N-E-W-W-R-I-T-E-S.com. Or you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Nikisha underscore Elise. That's our show for the week. I'll holla at y'all next time. Peace. Peace.